Kiefer, and welcome to the beginning of a bright future, a world without vegans. Over the last several years, the vegan movement increased in volume to nearly deafening levels. You can experience the din of aggressive vegan ideologues every Thanksgiving at your local Whole Foods. The two-faced corporate Janus of the vegan movement. And on the one hand, they cater to the vegan lifestyle while simultaneously providing some of the highest quality meat available at a grocery store. I'm not sure anything demonstrates the vegan hypocrisy more than a vegan shopping at Whole Foods for their Thanksgiving tofurkey only to vomit vitriol at the customers who had the bad fortune of entering the store as the vegan exits. Before I go any further, I want to talk about my own personal feelings about the ethical treatment of animals. I am also almost as viciously serious about the welfare of animals as a vegan pretends to be, although throughout the airing of this podcast you'll learn why vegans are the ultimate hypocrites. Animals give their lives to help sustain and support the wildly creative endeavors of the human race. For that, they deserve our respect. And maybe Hinduism is right. They might even deserve our reverence. If we can respect the animals that comprise the foundation of our society, we can find a better way to raise, treat, and care for them through to the end of their lives. In a strange twist of fate, if we do treat animals, particularly herd animals, in a more humane and generous manner, a manner similar to their natural proclivities, we can actually repair the environment, lower the cost of meat products, eliminate world hunger, protect against drought-induced famine, and avoid the invitation that our current system provides to unabashedly abuse these animals. Changing the way we raise livestock will be a thread that runs through future podcasts because it also relates to how plant-based agriculture is destroying the environment and eliminating wildlife diversity faster than any other human activity in history. So if you share the beliefs of giant priests or Theravadic monks, I can understand your position. Although, if you choose to follow this podcast, you'll quickly discover that your efforts to protect life by being vegan are in vain. But I do, res- I do respect your convictions. I'm not here to trash anyone's per- any one person's beliefs. I'm here to battle the lies on which many people base their practice. And we should all have compassion for those who are, who were coerced, cajoled, and manipulated into believing something powerfully emotional, yet completely false. It's an experience we all share. And if you claim you're lucky enough to have never experienced this, then stop by my studio after the show and I'll give you your I'm a wondrous snowflake cookie. Now that I've explained my ethical proclivities towards the animals that sustain us, the ones on which we prey... And let's be honest, we're part carnivore, so we do prey on other animals. I want to share an ulterior motive. I want these podcasts to reach the host of the late show, Stephen Colbert. It doesn't matter it doesn't matter if you agree with his politics or not. It's hard to disagree with his displayed wit, intelligence, and charisma. I followed his career for a long time since he was on the Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Who doesn't enjoy getting their news with a dose of comedy, or their comedy with a dose of news, however you prefer to look at it? Now, if you've seen enough of his shows, you know that, like 80% of the modern world, he thinks that vegans and vegetarians should be respected and emulated, if possible, 
because a vegan diet is the holy grail of health, and also because going vegan can save the planet. He tried being vegan, but he couldn't do it. That, in and of itself, wouldn't matter much. But his audiences see him as savvy, pseudo-intellectual, sciencey geek. And he has charisma. So when he has Natalie Portman on his show to talk about her new vegan advocacy movie, people listen. Nobody would even care that Natalie Portman's vegan until she's endorsed by someone they like and respect. Someone demonstrably intelligent like you, Stephen Colbert. And Alicia Silverstone? Who cares that she's a vegan? Well, no one did until Stephen Colbert had her on his show to endorse her vegan diet book. And each time he becomes apologetic for the fact that he couldn't maintain a vegan lifestyle. Stephen, stop apologizing. It's great that you're not a vegan or even vegetarian. Not only are you healthier for it, but you're slowing the pernicious destruction that agriculture has on our most precious resource, which is topsoil. And I'll cover topsoil in another episode, but without it, there wouldn't be food for anyone. And Stephen, I have to ask, will you please turn that dry, sardonic wit on vegans? We'd all be better for it. Start, stop giving a blanket endorsement to a nasty ideology with no basis in fact that's spread via bald-faced lies and endangers everyone on the planet. Stephen Colbert, you are the inspiration for this podcast. If I can turn you to the light, we'll have an easier time defeating the dark side. Now that that's over, you might be asking at this point, why do I have such a disdain for vegans? I already said that I align with them 100% on their desire for the humane treatment of animals. I even respect the people who mistakenly believe veganism will cure their woes and make this superhuman effort to eat like a Himalayan goat. But that's not what makes me so angry. Unlike vegans, I have an ethical standard that rises above the myopic focus of my ideology. I feel I have a responsibility to give information that at the very least will not harm, but at the highest level will heal. Vegans, on the other hand, will tell sensational lies just to get people to go vegan, damned the effects on their health, their mental acuity, or their physical performance. For that, I cannot sit by idly. It's the antithesis of everything that motivates me, the work that I do to benefit others. And this is a terrifying time. Veganism has proponents up and down the political spectrum, including the uppermost levels of the World Health Organization. With fears of climate change and an all-time high, which we'll discuss climate change rationally without the fear-mongering that's usually attached, with But with the fears of climate change, it's easy for authorities to continue writing dietary guidelines that move us closer and closer to the vegetarian and vegan ideology. Those of us who are concerned for our health and the health of our loved ones, and those of us who do care deeply about the environment and the world that we'll leave to our children, we need to be as mobilized, dedicated, and direct as the vegan activists. We can, however, forgo the need to be as bellicose, belligerent, and beguiling. I'll cover health aspects, or rather the disease aspects, of the vegan diet thoroughly on a future episode of Deconstructing Health. 
And on Biojacked, I'll look at the complete and utter idiocy of using a vegan diet for sports performance. And spoiler alert, there are more lies and drug use, both legal and illegal, among quote-unquote natural vegan athletes than you'd ever imagine. But this morning, I read an article from a vegan doctor that I'll call Dr. Vegan that lets me continue on the current theme from the latest episodes of Deconstructing Health and Biojacked, which is ketogenic diets. The title of the article is Eight Reasons This This Physician Recommends You Drop the Keto Diet and Go Vegan. And we'll put a link down in the show notes so you can see the original article. But this gives me a fantastic opportunity to demonstrate the level of moral turpitude to which vegans will sink for their personal crusade. You should know by this point that I don't advocate the ketogenic diet in general, although it does have its place. I have directly used it with a terminal cancer patient who was given three months to live after stopping her treatment. And after an intense, ultra-low-carb, pseudo-ketogenic diet uh, put her into remission for over four years. Now, I'll touch on this elsewhere in another episode or maybe in an article. But despite the shortcomings of a ketogenic diet, it is far healthier than a vegan diet and far healthier than the, the American Dietary Guidelines. So I want to go through Dr. Vegan's list of what's wrong with a ketogenic diet and show where the doctor either misleads the reader, misunderstands the data quoted, or just flat out lies. So let's start. His first reason is that Inuits never went into ketosis for a good evolutionary reason. He he spins the same old tired yarn of of equating ketosis to ketoacidosis and how dangerous it is, ignoring the fact that people are in ketosis every morning regardless of the diet they consume. And he says that it's so dangerous that the Inuit developed a mutation that wouldn't allow them to go into ketogenesis at all. The paper he quoted, however, never said anything remotely of the sort. It did find an allele for genes that control the rate at which fatty acids can oxidize at the mitochondria, and this allele slows down fatty acid oxidation and therefore ketone production, since ketones are generated from the metabolization of fatty acids. But the research noted that the high levels of omega-3 fatty acids in the traditional diet, they speed up the same pathways that the allele slows down thereby regulating ketosis and fatty acid oxidation, not stopping it. All research indicates that the Inuits most definitely were in ketosis. And from a mitochondrial and evolutionary perspective, it makes sense. Forcing too much energy through the mitochondrial mass too quickly can lead to the formation of partially partially peroxidized fatty acids, which can degrade the mitochondria. This his first reason I chalk up to a radical misunderstanding on the part of Dr. Vegan. So his second reason is that studies of children with epilepsy show vitamin and mineral imbalances. The problem is that so do studies of most children and adults who don't take a multivitamin. And that's all it takes to, ca- 
combat the, and prevent the deficiencies. The flip side that he conveniently forgets to mention is that vegans are chronically deficient in vitamin B12, which often requires injections because, of course, that's natural. Uh, low levels of several essential amino acids, which increase, mor increase mortality risk. A severe deficiency of omega-3 fatty acids, which has been shown to lead to accelerated cognitive decline. And deficiencies in iron, zinc, calcium, iodine, and selenium, to name a few. This is misleading at best and irresponsible at worst. It's, and if anything, it's a case of the pot calling the kettle black. For his third reason, he said that the ketogenic diet stunts the growth of children. First of all, who has been advocating that we force kids who don't need to be on a ketogenic diet to go on a ketogenic diet? I haven't heard or seen this as a big push from anyone. But he again quotes a study in epileptic children and showed that roughly 20% had a slower growth rate than their peers. But he didn't quote the follow-up studies that checked back then when the children were in their teens and older of those who were still on a ketogenic diet to find that they were catching up to their peers. So although their growth might have been slower, it's hard to say it was because, it, because of the ketogenic diet or not, they end up growing the same amount. Now, interestingly, this is the antithesis of what Dr. Joel Furman has to say about diets that contain too much meat. If you don't know who Joel Furman is, you should look him up. He's the author of Eat to Live and has the inspiring physique of a malnourished stick figure. The point being, his adult growth has been stunted. But back to Joel's argument that meat in the diet... Um, increases maturation. He claims that it makes children mature too rapidly, especially females, and points to the decreasing age of the onset of menstruation in girls in the United States. So girls, are, girls and boys are reaching puberty faster in the United States, and they have been for several years now. So how can both of these be true? How could a ketogenic diet, which includes a lot of meat, slow growth, but eating too much meat increases the rate of growth. Uh, they're both kind of looking at the flip side of the real issue. Carbohydrates in the diet raise leptin levels, which directly correlate to how quickly a child enters puberty. Leptin is an energy balance hormone, so to speak. If it's high, then the body knows that it's okay to mature at maximum rate, for better or worse. If it's low, like on a ketogenic diet, then the body matures at a slower rate, but the end result is the same. Also, another big difference here that Dr. Vegan failed to acknowledge is that the children on a ketogenic diet tended to be much leaner than their peers. The amount of body fat that a child carries also raises leptin levels and speeds the onset of puberty. If Joel Furman had done his research, he'd have noticed that the amount of meat in a child's diet does not correlate with the decreased age of puberty onset, but that increasing levels of body fat with each generation of kids does correlate with the early onset of puberty. So, on to issue number four, 
The ketogenic diet has no effect on blood, blood glucose levels. Now, the study he quoted for this claim was a meta-analysis from which the researchers noted that not enough of the individual studies collected data on blood glucose levels to make an assessment. The study didn't find that blood glucose wasn't affected. It found that there was no way to tell from the studies they chose. I don't see how anyone could label this anything other than a blatant lie on the part of Dr. Vegan. So, he's making this easy for us, and we're zipping along now. Number five. The ketogenic diet causes pancreatitis in children and even death. So, although the one, one study he cited did show a few rare cases of pancreatitis and a single death, the other article he quoted was actually a commentary about the first article by researchers who pointed out that the original case studies were severely flawed and that many other reasons existed to expect that these children had a pre-existing etiology before going on the ketogenic diet. So in other words, they likely had a pre-existing condition that exacerbated or caused the pancreatitis. Now in this instance, Dr. Vegan actually provided the proof that he's trying to mislead, misdirect, and lie. Think about it. He cites a paper of his claim, then immediately cites a second paper as proof, but the proof is that he didn't read the articles. How responsible or ethical is this? Shouldn't a sense of ethics and respect extend to your fellow human beings as well as other animals? If you're a vegan, the answer is apparently no. For number six, he gives intestinal rum gastrointestinal rumblings as a reason. Again, in children, it's hard enough to control a child's diet when it's barely restrictive. Imagine how difficult it is to get a child to eat a wide enough variety of foods when you're a parent who might not be educated on how to supplement their child's diet. I can't even really give this one a proper assessment other than if you're worried about tummy aches, then you definitely want to avoid the massive fermentation and gas buildup that accompanies a vegan diet. Number seven. This one's one of my favorites. So number seven was birth defects. He claims that ketogenic diets cause birth defects. Well, first of all, the study he cited for this was first available in January of 2018 and it did not investigate the ketogenic diet at all. It instead investigated the correlation of dietary folic acid to the carbohydrate content of a pregnant mother's diet. The researchers then assessed folic acid deficiency against risk of birth defect and then correlated that to the carbohydrate content. To quote the authors of the study, so this is directly out of the study, Women with restricted carbohydrate intake are slightly more likely to have an infant with a neural tube defect. In the conclusion, however, which is may have, may have been all that Dr. Vegan actually read, they gave this as a they gave the ratio of this slightly more likely chance, which gives a thirty percent increase in risk. Well, if the risk is zero point one percent 
the increased risk is 0.13%. And that's barely within the realm of a statistically significant difference, particularly for their sample size, and definitely not significant. And besides, the problem was folic acid deficiency, which has been known for years to correlate to birth defects, and it had nothing to do with the actual dietary carbohydrates or lack thereof. But if we want to be fair, as I'm sure Dr. Vegan would agree, then we should look at the known issues that children who are born to vegan mothers have. And I'll put these citations in the show notes in case I incorrectly assessed any of the studies. So eight studies found that children born to vegan mothers have severe anemic blood disorders. Eight studies found slow physical growth with, with no sign of catch-up as they aged. Nine studies found severe nervous system damage. Four studies found mental impairments that were not reversible with nutritional therapy. Eight studies found an increased risk of blurred vision and blindness later in life. And at least two studies found a high risk of rickets. And I'll explain what rickets are after Dr. Vegan's number eight. Now, this is one of those moments where I can't believe that a medical doctor, who should be guided by a simple-to-follow mantra, do no harm, could be so mendaciously malicious because of a personal ideology. To recap, there's never been a single study to show an association of birth defects with a ketogenic diet, but 35 individual studies on the children of vegan mothers shows a panoply of birth defects, cognitive impairment, and various disorders all resulting in lifetime impairment. It's not, it's not often I get to use the word flabbergasted, but the audacity of Dr. Vegan leaves me flabbergasted. Now, finally, we're at Dr. Vegan's eighth reason to ditch, ditch the ketogenic diet. Broken bones, again, only in children. He once again uses the studies of epileptic children, which showed that six out of the 28 kids who had been on the ketogenic diet over an extended period of time suffered bone fractures. That means that roughly 21% of the kids suffered a broken bone during six years of growing up from adolescence to young adulthood. But that's actually pretty good. Dr. Vegan didn't bother to check the nominal statistics. 25% of all children will suffer at least one skeletal fracture by the time they're 18. If anything, apparently a ketogenic diet protects you from fractures, which I doubt that's the case, but that's a more reasonable assumption than saying that all children suffered from their bones being dissolved in acid via ketoacidosis. And yes, this is Dr. Vegan's argument as to why the kids, in reality, had healthy bones. Very strange, Dr. Vegan. Very strange indeed. Now, I said earlier, if you didn't know what rickets is, I'll, that I'd explain, and this is the perfect place. Because rickets is caused by a deficiency of vitamin D and results in the incomplete calcification of bones. The results can range from bow-leggedness to severe and crippling scoliosis. Note that rickets is normally viewed as a childhood disease of malnourishment in developing nations. 
So vegans should therefore be classified as malnourished, plain and simple. And let's not forget that as the vegan moment, movement has increased, there's also been an increase in the number of court cases where parents have been charged with murder because they decided that their infant needed to be vegan as well. Even with doctor warnings and the waning health of their infant child, they refused to give the infant any animal-based nutrition, including breast milk. In 2011, a jury in Atlanta found one, kill, one couple guilty of felony murder. Prior to that, the same thing happened in New York. In Florida, the grand jury granted mild clemency and convicted the couple of involuntary manslaughter. And it's not just limited to the United States. In 2017, a Belgian couple was convicted of the equivalent of involuntary manslaughter after their child died from malnutrition due to a strict vegan diet. So how can anyone concede the moral high ground to people so ruled by ideology that they use their medical credentials to intentionally cause harm, dissuade people from using a diet far healthier than the World Health Organization's guidelines, or to parents who would willingly inflict lifelong disorders on their infant children, or parents who would rather kill their infant than provide breast milk because mom happens to belong to the animal kingdom. So hopefully you can see why I hope for a bright new future, a world without vegans. Thank you.